Our scripture reading this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark in the first chapter. Let us listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Friends, would you pray with me? Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Friends, you may have heard this parable about heaven and hell before, because I know I've preached on it at least once, but it might be familiar to some of you. This parable of an image of heaven and hell is that they look almost exactly the same, with a round table and a bowl of delicious steaming food in the middle, and all of the people eating in a circle around the table have very long chopsticks. In hell, all of the people are starving as they look at this steaming bowl of food. And in heaven, they are all happy and well-fed and enjoying each other's company. Because with those very long chopsticks, they are all taking turns feeding one another. We hear in this gospel lesson this morning that when we call him Peter, of course he was Simon in the beginning, when Simon Peter's mother-in-law is raised up, lifted up by the hand of Jesus, her fever leaves her, and immediately she begins to serve them. Now, all jokes aside about how moms can never get a sick day, even, I guess, when their kids are old enough to be grown up and married and come home with a spouse, I thought that we could think together this morning about the act of service. I'll start by telling you that I have a small focus group, let's call them, of people I sometimes discuss my sermon ideas with before I preach on them, and none of them were in favor of this topic or where it was headed. One said not to talk about it at all. The other called it on very thin ice. I will acknowledge that sermons, it is said, should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, And so I will gently suggest that if this sermon afflicts you, it may be because you have been comfortable. I will also say that there are many pitfalls along the way, 
out of which I may misspeak, out of, my own mis out of my own comfort, which is significant, and if I do that, I apologize in advance. But it is a simple fact that serving is a loaded term. There is a hot button here that brings up gender and race and socioeconomic status and immigration status, these things that we talk about in our opening welcome. It is right here in our neighboring city, in our own town, and in our own homes that we see these dynamics at play. For just a few examples, did you know that just about 14% of Americans are black, but black Americans make up a disproportionate percentage of people in service industries such as postal workers and nursing assistants and home health aides, sometimes making up even more than half in some of those groups. When I go to visit folks at Bridgeport Hospital, I notice a large disparity in the demographics across the different jobs in the very same building. For another example, if you were to walk around this very neighborhood in the fall talking to people who are busy collecting leaves, you would find that one in three landscapers is an immigrant. But in some places in this country, that is as high as over 60%. As another example, if you were to call your friend with young kids at dinner time, you may find an overwhelmed mom on the other line who was trying to finish up her paid work tasks off her computer while also prepping her family's dinner and probably also figuring out how to pull off over text message with other moms in the community, how to pull off something like a class project for the school. Just as a little example, we say now the gender inclusive term room parent, but in all of my kids' years in public elementary schools, I have never yet seen a room father. Have you? All of these glimpses into life around us have to do with the labor of serving and how it is broken down across different identities. It's getting very quiet in here. This is why they told me not to go there. We're going to keep going. In the home, for married heterosexual couples with children, on average, mothers spend about twice as much time on unpaid at-home domestic labor of child caring and housework. When sociologists run studies to track how mothers and fathers are spending their time for the sake of research, they often find that even in couples who are both working outside the home the same number of hours, even with couples who claim that they're also working the same amount of hours inside the home, they're both over-reporting how much time fathers are actually spending doing childcare and housework. And I would guess that this is because fathers now, while on average they might not be doing half, they are by and large doing so much more than their fathers and grandfathers did. So by comparison to that, it looks like they are doing so much more. And this is all for the average middle-class American family. For wealthier families, more housework and manual labor and childcare is outsourced. I would love to go into a history lesson about how historically women have traditionally cooked and cleaned and raised the children, that it is also very new that there is a nuclear family living on its own. It's also very new that women have been expected to keep pace with men in the workforce while still shouldering more of the domestic labor. We could go into a slideshow with images of Rosie the Riveteer. Can you all imagine her, the we can do it picture, as women entered the workforce to fill in for jobs that were needed during World War II, 
and then as soldiers were returning from the war, there needed to be a case made that women returning to the home was their highest value, and there became this cult of domestic goddesses that has never really left us. The standard that women hold themselves to and the housekeeping and child rearing is impossibly high. So in short, if you are talking about cooking and cleaning and serving food, dealing with messes, doing manual labor across society, it is a simple fact that if you are born into one race or one gender, or one place in the world, you will be doing more of this service work than if you were born into a different place or identity. So friends, do not hear me saying that there is anything wrong with being in any service industry or in being a stay-at-home parent. Don't hear me saying there is something wrong with those who employ others to help them with the care for themselves or their children or their homes. Certainly do not hear me saying some simple platitude that don't worry about it when people are waiting on you because they are earning extra points in heaven and it will all even out in the end. And certainly let's not take these facts and spin out something simplistic about what is good or bad or right or wrong. I think it is much more complicated than that. I think if you think about your own day, you will realize how much more complicated it is. Many of us are in an in-between place. Some of us are in some sort of serving capacity throughout our day and are also served at some point during our day. People are, by and large, eating food we have not prepared ourselves more than ever. But serving is not a neutral act. Some folks are more likely to serve, and some folks are more likely to be served. Many folks spend so much of their time being served that it would not even occur to them to serve others, and they feel wholly entitled to all of the serving that other people are doing on their half, so much so that they might not even realize it. And others spend so much of their time serving others that they are too tired to even serve themselves at the end of the day. If we were to return to our story about the tables of heaven and hell, I wonder if we could say that Earth now looks like this. Some of us have very long chopsticks, and some of us are being fed. And others, often the very same ones who are doing so much of the feeding, are going hungry. And all the while, the ones doing the feeding are feeling devalued for doing so by the very people who depend on them, whether they aren't paid well or aren't treated well, or simply because they are sitting at that table feeling invisible. I also know that for many of us in the room, we might acknowledge that there is a longing that we would love to be able to serve in ways that we used to, or we would love to have people in our lives that used to serve us, that there has been for some of us a mutual serving of one another that is now not a part of our lives and which we long for. This all brings up a lot of complicated feelings for all of us. But I think the question for us today is what does God have to say about this society we have inherited and continue constructing? And what is the call of the gospel on our lives when serving is something that in a hierarchical society the most privileged members can opt out of? Serving is not a neutral act now, and it was not neutral either in the time of the Gospels. 
Let's return to our passage and notice together the deep spiritual implications of the language. That when Peter's mother-in-law is raised up, this is the same term also for bringing someone back from the dead, even though there is a different word that can be used for the resurrection, this raising someone up from a state that is almost like death to a state of being glorified and giving new life is an incredibly powerful spiritual image. And then the word that is used when she is raised up and she begins serving them is the same word, diakonos, that we get deacon from, and the same word can also be translated minister. It's the same word that happens when the angels, Jesus has been in the wilderness and has been tempted and starving and suffering, and the angels appear and they serve him. They minister to him. They become deacons to him. And it's the same exact word that Jesus uses when he tells the people that he came not to be served, but to serve. He came to minister to everybody. So she is raised up, and she begins deaconing. She begins caring for the community. She begins serving. I wonder what joy and delight we have lost as a collective community because of this hierarchical society when we have replaced something that should have been so powerful and beautiful and holy, and it has become a site for resentment and unfairness, injustice, and invisibility. The church after the resurrection began in places just like this house where the story happens, where Peter's mother-in-law lives. A house church sprang up in a place that Franciscan monks rediscovered in the 1960s. Under this monastery, they began excavating, and they found that this site that had been holy to Christian worshipers for centuries upon centuries was right on top of a little house that was right beside the synagogue in Capernaum, right where the story may have happened, just a very short walk. And in that house, now I know you could laugh and say, how many times has somebody said, this is a piece of the one true cross and this is a piece of Noah's Ark. But archaeologists think that there is a very good chance that they have found the very same house where this happened. The name Peter is inscribed in it. There were artifacts associated with his trade, and this one little house expanded and expanded and expanded its bounds very quickly. So that seems to show that as the worshiping community, which began as a house church, began to grow and grow and grow some more, they had to keep on building additions to this little fledgling church, and that the community continued to worship there and build on top of it for centuries. So they do think there is a very good chance that this was that very place. And I wonder what this woman must have been like that in her love, in her serving, in her compassion, in all of the ways that she welcomed the community in and hosted them and served them, that the church was able to blossom and grow right out of that very place where she had been raised up and made into one of the very first deacons. The church is supposed to stand against all of what is wrong in the outside world and represent a different way of being. 
a new community where people who outside of the walls may have felt invisible and those who may have, without realizing it, treated other people as invisible would all come together week after week, remember how much God loved all of them, remember their unity in Christ, and all share one meal, ministering to one another across all identities. And the highest good that you could do in the early church was to serve one another. We had a birthday at my house. We celebrated on Friday night. And one of my favorite things to do is to carry that birthday cake with all of the lit candles on it and deliver it to the birthday kid. I love when the lights go down and everyone sings, and I love that moment of serving. I re remembered that when I was a little child, the six of us would all take turns being honored to be the one to carry the lit birthday cake to the birthday kid. And it was such an honor and such a joy to be the one to serve. There was something so holy, something so sacred about carrying that flame on a beautifully decorated cake as everyone sings. And I wondered if that wasn't the kind of elevation of the serving moment. Now, as we go throughout our days, of course, the lights won't dim, the candlelight won't glow, and people won't sing when we serve one another in simple ways. But what if we could transform the idea of service for ourselves when we remind ourselves that there is no higher calling than to care for one another, than to serve one another. So what could we do about this? I think being aware, at the very least, of the people you're serving and the people who are serving you is just a start. Being aware when you sit down at a meal of the food on your plate and even if you think you fixed it for yourself, being aware that somebody grew it somewhere and somebody picked it and harvested it, somebody drove it a long way from one place to another, somebody stocked it on a shelf and somebody bagged it, and maybe somebody did prepare it for you and serve it to you, being grateful for all of the hands along the way and asking God's blessing on them. Notice the tables you sit at throughout the week. Notice if there is a call to change something about how that table works. And mostly, I think, what we are invited into is participating in the life of the church, where God's call is for each and every one of us to figure out why we are the way we are, why we have the gifts and skills we have, so that we can use them to create this table. This table that hopefully when we all come together, looks like one that reflects heaven. May it be so.